a guy when I was a young Christian, one of my mentors, he used to say every day he would get up to speak or he'd always say, it's a good day to be alive. So let's just say it. It's a good day to be alive. <laughs> He's almost 80 years old now and he still streams on uh, on the internet, and I was watching him the other day, and he's like, it's a good day to be alive. I'm like, oh my gosh, I so remember him saying that. So we're doing a series. Hey, if you're part of our Elevate family, we want to honor you, and we want to tell you that we miss you, we love you, and uh, giving links should be on the bottom of the screen. Your tithes and offerings, Elevate family, are important at this time and this season, so we want to bless you with that. And then we want to encourage you to be a two-minute missionary. You can be a two-minute missionary today. You can share the stream. So if you're watching us by live stream, just hit the share button and put it on your wall because somebody needs to hear it. And it's good news unto all people. So we're talking about unto us, a son is given unto us, a child is born. This is from the book of Isaiah. And it's all about Christmas time. And as you know, just to give you a lot of background as to kind of you know, the birth of Jesus and, and the storyline that's given out, particularly in, in the Old Testament, Isaiah doesn't flinch, right? So he talks about the coming of Christ. He's called the evangelist of the Old Testament. While all of the other, all of the prophets elude to Jesus, Isaiah is extremely specific. Isaiah 53, I mean, uh, Isaiah 9, we read last week, Isaiah 7, I mean, he's extremely specific about Jesus. It's crazy. And so in the book of Isaiah, you got to have context for what's going on here. Um, the nation is in a really dark time. The king has uh, kind of lost his mind. He's barred the doors of the temple, forbidding people to worship. Sounds like COVID, right? I mean, I'm like, what? That's crazy. Sounds like what's going on now. They, you know, they, they, so he had barred the doors of the temple. He let all kinds of other worship go on, but he would not allow the worship of God in, during that time. So he bars the door of the temple. The people had abandoned their worship practices because they weren't being taught. They weren't allowed to gather. They weren't allowed to hear the word of God. And so what's inevitable to us as, as people is when you break fellowship or you're not around community, you're not hearing the word of God, you're in, you're, your nature is to just drift away. Right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? If you take me out of church for about three months, it's like, where's Kevin? Oh, we don't even know. You know, he's got a beard. He's got a wolf T-shirt on. I mean, he's walking around in his underwear. What happened to him? I don't know. Right? So the point is, is that we need fellowship. We need to be together. It's what causes us to grow. We need to hear the word of God. The Bible says the greatest famine a world could ever have is a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. The greatest famine is not want for bread. The greatest famine is not a want for water. The greatest famine, according to the scripture, is to hear the word of God. And so when a people are starved for the word of God, it creates an anemic uh, uh, problem within us spiritually. So we need to hear the word of God. It's very, very important. We need each other. The Bible says when we gather, there's something that happens. Romans tells us it's mutual encouragement. We're just encouraged. We don't even have to talk to each other. We just see each other and we get encouraged. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're just like, hey. <laughs> we need it. So this is what's going on in Isaiah. This, the, Ahaz was forbidding the worship. The people had abandoned their worship practices. The leaders had enjoined themselves to foreign kings and basically idolatry. The courts were ruling with injustice. They were apathetic towards justice. Even though the law said something specific, the courts would not rule according to the law. And injustice was the, day, was the order of the day. All of this is going on. The nation that was called to bring light was bringing darkness. And so in the middle of all of this darkness, God sends his prophet and begins to give a promise of hope. 
And God begins to give a promise of life. And this is who Jesus is. In the middle of darkness, God brings a promise of hope. In the middle of despair, God has a promise of life. He always does. God does not abandon you to darkness. It's not, that's not who he is. He will never abandon his people to darkness. He will never abandon his people to hopelessness. He always has a word of hope and he always has a promise of a new day and a promise of a better tomorrow. The problem is oftentimes we don't listen. This is what the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation. Today, if you were, this is Hebrews, today if you will hear his voice, today if you'll listen, today if you'll just pay attention to what God is saying. Then in the book of Revelation, it says, those who have ears to hear, those who have a desire to hear God, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. It's not that God is not speaking. Proverbs says this, wisdom, or the voice of the Lord, is being poured out in the concourses of the streets, crying out, simple ones, how long will you love simplicity? How long will you ignore the wisdom that is right in front of you? It's not that God's not speaking to us often. It's that we're not willing to hear it. And we, have to, we, we're drown, we drown out the voice of God with all of this noise that surrounds us. We allow all of the noise. Sometimes we have to cut the noise and we have to listen to what the Lord is saying. But the point is, is that God always has a promise for you. He always has hope for you. He will not leave his people in darkness. And so when you, come on. And so when he sends, when he sends Isaiah, he's sending Isaiah and he's trying to invoke faith. He's sending the prophet to the kings. He's sending the prophets to the people. And he's trying to get a response of faith out of the people. But because he can't get a response of faith out of the people, the Lord invokes his own word. So he's like going, ask something of me. Look to me. I'm going to do this. Does anybody believe me? And they, wouldn't, they would not respond to God in faith. And so because they would not respond in faith, God not only promised them an immediate deliverance or a near deliverance, but he begins to prophesy a far deliverance. In other words, God's like, look, I'm going to fulfill this not for your sake. I'm going to fulfill this for my sake. Faithless generation, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. That's what Jesus does. Jesus does for you what you can't do for you. That's good news. He will do for you what you can't do for you. Good news. In the middle of the darkness, God brings light. He promises a present deliverance and an even greater deliverance. In Isaiah chapter 9, he's talking about the darkness and the despair that's over the nation, and he's talking about a darkness and a despair that will be over the time. So he's, what, what happens, if you understand um, Hebrew prophecy, and particularly Old Testament prophecies, the prophet would speak. And when he was speaking, oftentimes they're speaking down a timeline. They were called seers. And so they would see. And the, prof- the prophetic word would always have a near and a far application to it. And so oftentimes when the prophet would be speaking, he would see something that was going to happen in the near, and he would see something that was going to be happened in the distance. And that's what's going on here with Isaiah. Isaiah's talking about a near darkness and a near deliverance, but he's also going to talk about a far, dark- a far darkness and a far, du- and a far deliverance, right? The ultimate darkness when Christ was born and him being the light coming into the world. The near darkness was the, was the time in which they lived. He says, this time of darkness and despair will not go on forever, right? We could just stop right there. That's a word of hope, right? I want you to say this. This, my time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. That's a promise. No matter what you're going through, no matter what the despair is, God says it will not go on forever. It's not going to go on forever. See, it's going to never going to end. Who told you that? Not if you're in Jesus. If you're in Jesus, it's going to end. This too shall pass. 
Sorrow endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That's what my Bible says. Your time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Then he goes on to say this, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which was completely irrelevant to Isaiah at this moment. Zebulun and Naphtali in this time was irrelevant, but it would be relevant in the future. There will be a time in the future, see there it is, when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies on the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. There were two roads in Israel. There was the way of the sea and there was the king's highway. So if you were descending from the north and you were coming to Jerusalem, there were only two roads that you could take. You could follow the way of the sea, which would bring you down the coast, or you could follow the king's highway, which was the more eastern road. And so he's specifically telling them, this place along the way of the sea that will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in deep darkness, a light will shine. Happy day. You will enlarge the nation and the peoples will rejoice. They will rejoice before you because you have brought in the harvest. (laughs) You ever get happy when the harvest comes in? When the thing you were waiting for happens, right? That's what he's saying. God's gonna bring in the harvest. Like a warrior who has won a great victory and divides the plunder. This is what God's gonna do. He's gonna be a warrior that wins a great victory. He said, this coming day, this coming hour will be a time when I bring in the harvest. When I bring into you everything that's been well withheld from you. Um, this time of victory that I'm going to bring in this future day, it's gonna be like I'm gonna be a warrior who has won a great victory and I've gathered the plunder. Says you will, and he says this, this is good news. This day, what this, what this coming day will do will break the yoke of slavery and will lift the burden off of the people's shoulders and he will break the oppressor's rod. This is what Jesus is gonna do. This is what he has done. Jesus has done this for us. So the Bible says he will enlarge the nation and the people will rejoice. There's another prophecy that says a nation will be born in a day. Well, what day? The day that Jesus rose and the day that the, the, the spirit was sent on the day of Pentecost, a nation was born in a day. And do you know what nation that was? The holy nation, the royal priesthood. That's the nation that was born in a day. God created a nation, a people among all peoples, and created them as a holy nation, believers in Christ. That nation was born in a day. And if you're in Christ, you're a part of that nation. God enlarges the nation, and all of the people rejoice. The Lord will preserve his people forever, and he will bring about a future event that will center in this place called Zebulun. So it's talking about. So the prophet is prophesying He's telling what's going to happen. It's coming of the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah in this time. The birth of Jesus is what he's talking about. And he said in this future event, we'll center in a place called Zebulun. Well, where's Zebulun and where's Naphtali? It's on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And any of you who know, where was Jesus's ministry centered? On the north side of the Sea of Galilee. That was his base of operation. So I just want to give you a little understanding here. Nobody could be who Jesus was. Not only is the son of God, but the prophetic word that was spoken of him by the prophets, it's almost unfathomable to even consider it. If you were trying to gather all of the verses that were speaking about the coming Messiah, I'm gonna give you just five of many. If you were gonna gather all of the verses about the coming Messiah and you were gonna try to figure out who he was, you would be lost. The scholars of the day, I'm sure, were scratching their head, why? Because the prophet said he would be born in Bethlehem. He would be called a Nazare, right? He would be of the tribe of Judah, yet out of Egypt he would come. And then he would be called, he would be called a Galilean, or he would come from Galilee. 
How is this possible? How is this person that is to be born in Bethlehem going to be a Nazare? How is he going to be raised in Galilee, be of the tribe of Judah, yet come out of Egypt? How is this possible? Yet Jesus fulfilled all of those things. Born in Bethlehem, as the prophet said. He was a Nazare, which, which means branch. The word, the word Nazare comes out of the book of Jeremiah. He is the branch of Jesse. He is the branch of a cut down tree. At this time, the kings had been cut down. The line of the kings had been cut down. A lot of disobedience. Jehoiakim was the last of the Hebrew kings, and the Lord said, render this man childless. No one will sit upon his throne. You say, well, didn't God, no one of his line will sit upon. You say, well, didn't God make a covenant with David? Yeah, he made a covenant with David. It's just that Jehoiakim was only one of David's sons, so the line of the kings was going to shift. That's what he's talking about. Jesus is the branch. Uh, he is of the line of David. He is the king of, he is of the king, kingdom of David. And he's of the bloodline of David, and he is the branch of the cut-down tree. That's what the word Nazare means. Not only that, he was raised in Nazareth. As far as Jesus' credentials for kingship, unparalleled. Unparalleled. Mary was a direct descendant of David by blood through another son. His father Joseph was a direct descendant of David by blood, but but his father was of the earthly line of the kings. In this time, the only one who held, if there was a legal right for anyone to hold the seat of the king... Not Herod. Herod was the king, but he was a puppet king placed there by Rome. He was not the legal king. The legal king of Israel at that time was Jesus' legal father, Joseph. But Jesus wasn't born of Joseph, was he? He was born of the virgin. So he was born of heaven through Mary. Mary carried the blood of David. So Jesus had the blood right to the throne, and he had the legal right to the throne. Undisputed right to be king of the Jews. Undisputed. Undisputed. Notice that when he was claiming to be king of the Jews, no one disputed it. They just kept disputing his legitimacy, his, he was illegitimate birth. But the rabbis couldn't, there was no dispute. They were saying he's the king of the Jews. They couldn't dispute it because legally he was the king, he was of, he was of uh, David's line. And his blood testified through his mother that he was of, of David's line. He was undisputed. Born king of the Jews for a specific purpose. So if you're a prophet and you were trying to figure out this king, what the heck does this mean? How's he going to be born in Bethlehem, be a Nazareth, raised in Galilee of the tribe of Judah, and he's going to come out of Egypt? When he was born, right, what happened? And they were, Herod was going to kill him? Where did Joseph take the baby? To Egypt, right? So Joseph, in the middle of the night, God gave him a dream, a vision. Those are in the Bible. Dreams and visions are in the Bible. So he had a dream and vision, and, a, and in a dream, the Lord told him to take the child to Egypt, and he went down to Egypt. And then when Herod had died, the one who sought the child's life is dead, They came back from Egypt, and where did they go? Nazareth. Out of Egypt I will call my son, and he will be called a Nazarene. Coincidence? I don't think so. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali was on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was called Galilee of the Gentiles. To this day, the Jews don't settle that land. They don't. Beautiful land. Sea of Galilee. You'd think waterfront property would be a premium over there, right? There's no condos. There's nothing around the Sea of Galilee because the Jews despise that land because it's a border country. It sits upon the border of all of these nations. And so they called it Galilee of the Gentiles. Read your Bible. Even when they start, when they start talking of the disciples, they'll say things like, they're Galileans. Well, what does that mean? That's a besmirching, right? That's a, that's a down. Oh, those guys are from overside of the tracks. They're from hillbilly country. Those Galileans, those are the guys that believe wrestling's real, right? They change their oil in the driveway. That's who the Galileans are, right? They would look down upon them. They were not, they were not 
hierarchical Jews like the Judeans were. And so it was Galilee of the Gentiles, which is good news. Jesus could have picked anywhere. He could have picked anywhere to start his ministry. He chose Galilee. Why? Because it's good news for all people. Jesus came for all people. He came for all people. It's what the angel said. The deliverer would be a light for all people. Luke chapter 2. Behold, an angel stood before the glory of the Lord stood around them. This is talking about the shepherds in the book of Luke. And the shepherds were greatly afraid. If you see an angel appear in the sky and there's like 10,000 times 10,000 of them and the light is shining from heaven, you'd be afraid too. Right? Shock and awe. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you what? Good news of great joy for who? All people. All people. For unto you this day is born Christ the Lord in Bethlehem. And you will go and you will find, Matt won, Matt won a prize off this verse, babe wrapped in swaddling clothing at the Christmas party. Good news for all people. So Jesus chose, the, the, he chose Galilee of the Gentiles. Why? Because he didn't come for just the Jews. He came for all people. And you know what he came for? He came for the borderlanders. He came for the outcasts. He spoke their dialect. Jesus spoke Aramaic, in which was another slur that they put upon him, is that he didn't speak high Hebrew. He spoke Aramaic. He spoke a street Hebrew, right? Why did he do that? He, did he do that because he wasn't God? Did, as God, could he not speak in such eloquent manners? Of course he could speak with eloquence. But he did it because he's identifying with people. He's showing himself to be among the lowly. And he did it, what God exalts the humble and resists the proud, does he not? Jesus doesn't care about man's vanity. Jesus doesn't care about man's posturing. Jesus doesn't care about man's boastfulness. Jesus doesn't care about man's PhDs and MBAs. He doesn't care. It's not that those things aren't important, but that's not, those things don't impress him. It doesn't impress him. Our identity is in him. That's what impresses him. If you have a PhD, good for you. If you're a Christ, you're a daughter who has a PhD, or you're a son who has a PhD. You're not Dr. So-and-so. You're a son who is a doctor, or you're a daughter who's a doctor. Your title does not precede your identity as son and daughter. That is, the higher, that is how God sees it. I, I, I stand here in a position. I'm a son who serves from this position. This position is not who I am. It doesn't define me. My relationship with my wife doesn't define me. My relationship with my children doesn't define me. I'm a son who is a husband. I'm a son who is a father to my children. I'm a son who stands. That is the primary identity of all believers. Sonship and daughtership. And if you don't get that, you won't get anything. You've got to get that right. So that stuff doesn't impress him. And it says, great, good news, great joy to all people. John 1 says, the light shines in the darkness. So Isaiah's prophesying of a darkness that was and a darkness that would come. And in again, to the backdrop of darkness, God brings light. Who does that? The ultimate hope dealer is Jesus. There is no greater hope dealer than Jesus. Into the darkness, he brings light. Into the darkness, he brings a promise. It doesn't matter what your darkness is. If you got darkness today, call on the Lord. Get to him. He will answer you. Find a promise. If God delivered somebody, he'll deliver you. He's no respecter of persons. He came to his own. His own did not receive him, but as many as received him, he gave them the right to be called the children of God to those who believe on his name. Not all people are Christians. Not all people are God's children. Ah. We like to say that, oh, we're all God's children. Not according to the Bible. 
You're not all God's children. You're God's creation, but you're not God's child. Who's God's child? Those who receive Christ. The world that doesn't know Jesus, they are not God's children. I just want to be clear. I want to be clear with everyone. If you're not in Christ, you are not God's child. You are God's creation, but you are not his child. The only ones who have the right to be called children, the only ones who have the right to be called son, and the only one who has the right to be called daughter are those who receive Jesus. Then you become a daughter, then you become a son, and you're adopted with full rights of inheritance. That's what the scripture says. And the bread is for the children. Good news. Which means if something's going to go down and a decision's got to be made between the child and the, not, and, the, and the person that's not a child, who do you think the father's going to choose? The child wins. I shared this a few weeks ago. You're like, that's not fair. I always say nothing fair about favor. Nothing fair about favor. If you're coaching a baseball team, ladies, if your husband's coaching the baseball team or the soccer team and there's two spots left and your boy Johnny and the neighbor's boy Billy are the only two that are left on the team, who's going to get on that team? Is the neighbor boy getting on the team if your husband's the coach? No way. Even if your husband comes home and says, honey, man, Johnny just isn't as good as Billy. And I think we got a better chance of winning with Billy and Johnny can just stay home. How many knows that's not going to work, right? It's not going to work. Nothing fair about favor. The bread is for the children. He came to his own. His own didn't receive him, but as many as did. And so this place, this land of Naphtali, this land of, of Zebulun, this north part of the Sea of Galilee is important because there sat what the Romans called the prima seat. The prima seat of the Roman Empire in that region was in Galilee. That's right. It was in Galilee, which means what? So we have Pilate, who was the Roman procurator. So they had governors over specific regions, but then they had a prima seat or a prime seat that they would put whenever nations were conjoined. Okay, So in the north of Galilee, there was this conjoining of all these nations, and the Romans put a seat there called the prima seat. So when the Romans would come to rule from there, and they would give provincial decrees, they would come to the prima seat, and they would rule from the prima seat. So nowhere was the heel of the boot of Rome more powerful than in Caesarea Philippi. And you think it's an accident that Jesus set up the center of his kingdom or the center of his ministry where the prima seat of Rome was? He did it as a direct contrast of this world and his world, this world and his world. He put it right there for a reason. And it was a land of darkness when the, when the Romans would come, there would be executions, but they were not, they would, when the Roman would, from the prima seat, whenever there would be there, all of these people that were sentenced to death, it would happen. The, the uh, ancient historians would say, Pliny, the, um, the Roman historian said, from Caesarea Philippi, blood flowed down. That's how it was. It was darkness. The boot of Rome was there. That's why the Galileans couldn't stand the Romans, right? Get off the boat, they're taxing you on your boat as soon as you can't even get off the boat. The Romans were right there, man. They'd fish that sea and the Roman tax guy would be right there. Matthew was one of them. <laughs> so God's, God brings a light into the land of darkness. He brings a direct contrast into the world's kingdom. This is the kingdom of the world. This is the kingdom of heaven. I want to see, he's showing it. It's what he's doing. He's mirroring it on purpose. You say, how's all this going to happen? How's this great light going to come? How would, how would the Lord bring this to pass? Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. One of the greatest statements in all of the Bible is right here. 
Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it to order it, to bring judgment, to bring justice from this time forward forevermore. And the passion of the Lord will accomplish this. I'm going to just take one part of this this morning, but maybe next week we're going to uh, try to break this down a little bit more. The part that I want to do this morning is unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. It's a prophecy almost 400 years before Jesus came. And it's talking about his divinity and his humanity all at the same time. He would, he would be a child that was be born, but he was a son that was given. You get the picture? The child was born, his divine humanity. He will be a child and he will be a son. The word son is the word bana, and it means sent forth. Jesus is the one sent forth from the Godhead. The Greek word would be apostolos, means sent forth. Same, same understanding. Jesus was the bana, the sent forth one from the Godhead. They had a council, and they had to redeem man. They had to bring man out of the darkness that he had so stupidly chosen. And they said, how are we going to do this? Well, one has to come as them. One must pay the price. And Jesus volunteered. Did you ever forget Jesus volunteered? He volunteered. He knew what it was going to cost him, and he did it anyway. He did it anyway. So anything the Lord asks of you, don't you ever think that it's too great for you? Jesus looked at you and said, you're worth it. And you need to look back at him and say, you are more than worth it. Whatever God asks you from your life, he is worth it. Yes, he, is. he is worth it. 100% worth it. He knew what this was going to cost him. He knew he was going to have to die. He knew the ridicule he was going to have to face. And he did it anyway. He wasn't surprised. <laughs> they couldn't take his life until it was the appointed time. Ready? And he walked right through them. They came to kill him. Jesus was like, not yet. Right through him, he would walk. They go, where'd he go? We don't know. He just left. And he said, no one takes my life from me. I give it away. And if I give it away, if I willfully give it away, I can willfully take it up. He didn't die of natural causes. On the cross said, to die, he gave up his spirit. He willed his death. What? That's what the Bible says. He says, if I give my life away, his body didn't just expire. As soon as the judgment had passed and as soon as the atonement was made, he, his, he gave up his spirit. And he says, if I give up my life, I can take it back up again. And he did. Declared to be the son of God with power, Romans says. <laughs> Romans 1, 16. Declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Jack. Not only did he rise, he, was, he ascended. He was born to bring light. He was born to bring a great victory. He was born to break the yoke of your slavery to sin. He was born to break the yoke of your slavery to the condemnation of sin. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The only person that condemns you is you and the devil. Nobody else can condemn you. The Lord doesn't condemn you. You're free in Christ. There's no condemnation. Why? Because Jesus has paid the price. Born to break the yoke of sin. Born to break the yoke of slavery. Born to break the yoke of condemnation. The child born to set the world free. Philippians, he knew the cost. He did it anyway. Philippians says he was in the form of God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a bondservant, came in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of mankind, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, 
He is highly exalted and he has been given a name which is above every name so that at the what? Name of Jesus, every knee is gonna bow and every every tongue will confess of those in the earth and those under the earth. So you get the opportunity to confess Christ in this life and if you deny him on your way to hell, you will confess him as Lord. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow and they will acknowledge him in lordship whether in this life or in the one to come. And believe me, you want to acknowledge him as Lord in this life. You do not want to try that out in the world to come. The Bible says this in this book of Philippians. He's talking about Christ. This is the same thing. It's called the divine condescension. There's what's called the incarnation where God became man. And there's what's called the divine condescension where God came down. I mean, I don't know if you guys can imagine whatever your status is in life, wherever you are, and I want you to lower yourself to the most disgusting level you could ever imagine. That's about what Jesus did. So if it's living in the streets and living in the sewers and eating out of garbage cans, if that's repulsive to you, then imagine the king of glory who came down into sinful, fallen human existence. That's a condescension. We think that he just came down like he was on vacation. The king left his throne, he left his glory, he left perfection. He left everything and he came here. And here isn't like here, right? The the world has had 2,000 years of the gospel. Demonic power ruled in that day. Ruled. It was not broken. Demons were everywhere. Read your gospel. Can't swing a cat. And demons are here, demons are here, demons are, they were everywhere. The devil would come right up and confront Jesus to his face. Why? Because the power of darkness was not broken. When was it broken? When he crushed his head. Huh? When he walked in there, right before Easter Sunday, and made him put his head on the ground, like a king, the king would put their head on the neck of their conquered enemies, and he put his head on, he put his foot on Jesus's, Jesus put his foot on the devil's head, looked at everybody around him, because he was ministering to the saints that were waiting for him, they had not ascended into heaven, it was a paradise, now we go directly to heaven, but because the cross had not been done and blood had not been shed, those who died looking forward to Christ went to a place called Abraham's bosom or paradise. So Jesus made an open spectacle of the devil, made him get down, looked at the saints and said, everybody ready? Devil got down, Jesus put his foot on his head and he kicked off. That's right. Super Bowl Sunday is not the best kickoff. Easter Sunday is the best kickoff. <laughs> no kickoff quite like that. He crushed his head. He is the complete essence. So it says when he's in the form of God, the Greek word here means that Jesus was made in the form, he was in the form of God, which means unalienable, unchanging truth. He's God. That's what it's saying. He's not kind of like God. The Greek word is he is God. He's inalienably God. His nature cannot change. He is God. That's what the Bible is telling us. He's called Emmanuel. Anybody know what that means? Emmanuel means what? God with us. Exactly. Not a form of God with us, not a shadow of God with us, not an angel of God with us, God with us. The Jews asked him, are you greater than, your, than our father Abraham in John chapter five? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham ever existed, I was. And before, and it also reads like this. So before Abraham existed and before Abraham, I was. In other words, I was the one speaking to Abraham, right? It was me. I am Melchizedek. I am the one without ancestry. 
I am the one who comes with the wine and the bread. Read your story. Melchizedek met Abraham, and what was he carrying? Wine and bread. Sound familiar? I am Melchizedek. I'm of a priestly line that has no ancestry, that is eternal. I am. They, he, they knew exactly what he was saying. He not only is saying before Abraham was born, I existed. He was saying in front of Abraham, it was me speaking. It was me. And what did they do? They picked up rocks to stone him because they knew what he was saying. They were not fuzzy. They're like, they didn't look at each other and go, what's this guy? What, what's he saying? They're like, they knew exactly what he was saying. You're saying you were the God that was speaking to Abraham. Jesus is like, right on. That would be me. <laughs> didn't blink. He did not need it. So he was in the form. He was absolutely God. But he did not need to hold on to his status. The Bible says he did not see his equality with God as something that needed to be grasped or held on to. This is, again, the play on the word. In other words, Jesus didn't need to grasp for equality with God. He already had it. It belonged to him. So he didn't need to reach for it in order to get it. He was God. So he, his equality with God was not something he had to reach for. He had it. And then it tells us the same thing. It wasn't something that he needed to hold on to. Why? Because he's the humble king. He doesn't need his status, man. He says, I'll set it. If, my, if, I, if me laying aside my status will redeem them, then I lay aside my status. Nobility is defined by someone, who having, someone having power and, and using that power to help other people. That's what it means to be noble. And Jesus looked at us, and he, here he is with his divine status. And he says, if I'm going to save them, then I have to set aside my divine status. Fine. And it's not, what did he empty himself of? He didn't empty himself of his divine nature. He emptied himself of his glory, the weight of who he was. He was always God. He couldn't get rid of his nature, but he could get rid of his representation. And so he came as a man. That's why when he was transfigured, right? You guys know the story? He's like, Peter, let me show you who I really am. <laughs> and Peter's like, I think we should stay here for a while. Uh, I think we should build some houses and we should stay right here. Well, I don't know what's going on right now, but this is incredibly awesome. He transfigured himself. Why? Because he had emptied himself of his glory. He did not empty himself of his deity because he could not. His very essence was divine. But he emptied himself of his glory. The weight of who he was. That's why John 17, what is he praying? Anybody know? Restore my what? Glory. Right. Well, somebody, he didn't say restore my Godhead. Restore my position as God. Give me back my rightful position and my equality with God. He never lost that. But what he set aside was his radiance. Isaiah 53 says he has no beauty that we should be attracted to him. Why? He was ordinary. When Jesus walked down the street, he, didn't, he wasn't glowing in the dark. You know, he wasn't like, like a Jedi, like hovering two feet above the earth. Ooh, here comes Jesus. You know, he was ordinary. He was not recognizable as God in his appearance. He was recognizable as God in his nature. Hmm? If you saw him in a crowd, there would be nothing special about him. But if you heard him talk, like the apostle said, my heart would burn. Did not our hearts burn? <laughs> Jesus is, Peter's like, where are we going to go, Lord? It's not because you glow in the dark, but when you speak, I come alive. When he spoke, living word. 
And the people were drawn to him. And what did they say? Who speaks like this? Who talks like this? He speaks as one with authority. He speaks as if he knows what he's talking about, because he does. So you wouldn't recognize Jesus in a crowd. But when you heard him talk, you would recognize him. When you sat in his presence, you would know there's something up here. I don't know what's up. That's why the rabbis, I tell you this all the time, that's why the rabbis were freaking out. Like we can't get anybody to come to synagogue. But yet they're flocking to this dude. Why? Because he was the very presence of God manifest. He is the Shekinah, the Shekinah, the abiding presence of God was among them. And they were drawn to him and they didn't even know why. Do you know why? Because he's the desire of nations. He's everything you're looking for. You just don't know it. He's everything mankind is looking for. They just don't know it. True. He's the desire of nations. He lowered himself, the divine condescension. Why? This is amazing. He came as a servant, which is as low as you could go. He actually came in the Greek. It's called doulos. And it means bondservant, literally slave. Jesus came as a slave. He lowered himself beneath the lowest of all humanity. Man is poor. Jesus came poor. Man can be homeless. Jesus was homeless. No place to lay his head. Whatever the lowest point of man's existence was, Jesus went beneath it. Why? So that he's the only one that has the right or the ability to lift man up. He doesn't just lift up the lofty. Jesus can lift up the lowly because he humbled himself beneath the very lowest of all humanity. The Bible says suffering pain, anxieties, worries, fears, doubts, hungers, just like you. A priest who is not alienated from our issues, but he being like us yet without sin. He took these things on himself, not only to identify them, th those with you, but so that all of, the suffering of, all of the suffering, guilt, and shame of humanity when he was resurrected and when he was crucified would be paid for so you don't have to have it anymore. We need to be poor like Jesus. Read your Bible, man. He became poor so that you might be what? Anybody help me out? Rich. And people go, spiritually, pastor. That's not what it says, but I will agree with you. It doesn't say rich spiritually. It says rich It didn't say Jesus was impoverished spiritually. It says he was physically impoverished on purpose because poverty is a curse. I don't know if you know that. Anybody here like poverty? Huh? I tell people all the time, poverty is only glorious to people who are not in it. The people that want to lecture you on the glories of poverty are the people who are not in poverty. The people who want to lecture you on it's not about material things are the people who have material things. It's amazing how rich billionaire elites like to, like, to lecture, like, like to lecture people on what they should and shouldn't have. God has no problems with possessions. He has problems with possessions having you. He doesn't have a problem with that. He's an abundant God. Read your Bible. He's a generous God. Read your Bible. He, I, I'll give you a verse right now. I love to quote it anytime I can. So let's bring it in. He told David, David fell, David coveted, David took what was not his. He took Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. He took her as his own, slept with her, got her pregnant, sent her home. Uriah comes back from the war. This is David, glorious David, the man after God's own heart. Uriah comes home. David tries to cover it up. Uriah doesn't go for it. Uriah sleeps at David's doorway. He said, how can I go and sleep with my wife when my men are in the field? 
And so he slept at the king's doorway. Now David's really freaking out. So David sends an order back with Uriah and he, com- and he tells the commander to put Uriah at the front of the troops so that he'll get killed. So David basically signed a death warrant to cover his own sin. Eh? And what did the, you guys know what the prophet said to him when he came to him? He told him, you're the man, David. You're the guy. You're the guy that stole another man's sheep. It was all he had. He tells the story of a rich man who had everything. Everything he could imagine. But there was one lowly man and all he had was one little ewe lamb. And he loved the ewe lamb. And he fed the ewe lamb from the table. And the rich man took the poor man's ewe lamb. And what did David say? The man who did this must be threefold or fourfold. And Nathan goes, you're the man, David. And then he goes on to prophesy. He said, I gave you this. I gave you this. This is the Lord. I gave you this. I gave you this. Ready? Hold the chair. And you know what the Lord said? If it wasn't enough... I would have given you more. Do you hear that? Did you get that? We don't like to quote that, but it's right there in the prophecy. Well, you're the man, David. God's like, look, David, I didn't have a problem with this. I didn't have a problem with that. I didn't have a problem with this because you always were honorable before me. And if what I had given you was not enough for you, if you would have asked me, I would have given you more. Hmm? If you know the gift of God that sits before you, you would ask, he told the woman at the well. Yeah? If you knew the gift of God that was sitting in front of you, you would ask. Problem is, is we don't know the gift of God that sits in front of us. We don't know the gift of God that's in our heart. We don't know his nature. We don't know his ways. We know of him, but we don't know him. Or we know him in a very small part of his existence. If you knew who I was, Kevin, you'd ask me. If you really knew. The fact that you don't ask me tells me you don't know who I am. Yeah, The fact that you don't ask him is a testimony that you don't know who he is. Yeah. It's all right. Don't shout me down. That was a great point, Pastor. I really agree with that. Right on. Good word, man. Good word. <clears throat> he lowered himself. The divine condescending. There is no place that Jesus cannot go to lift you up. There is no depth of sorrow. There is no depth of pain that the Lord will not go to to lift you up. Nowhere. You have to call on him. I have people ask me this question all the time. Well, then what's he waiting for? He's waiting on you. He's waiting on you. You all who what? Call upon the Lord will be saved. James says you have not because you ask not. And if you do ask, you don't ask in faith. You ask amiss. Uh, so people do. They want to just test God. They're just going to go, well, if you're God, then just give it to me. And if you want to give it to me, then I'll believe that you're God. And off they stamp. No faith, man. No faith. Faith is the currency of heaven. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it cannot be activated. Those that come to him must believe that he is. And what? He is a rewarder of those who seek him. God will seek those who, God, the Lord will reward those who seek him. Jeremiah 33, 3, call upon me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you know not of. God will show you great and mighty things that you know not of, but what's the condition? You got to call on him. If you don't call on him, he's not showing you great and mighty things that you know not of. The Bible says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let them what? Ask. What does that imply? That if you don't ask, you don't have access to his wisdom. So we just kind of sit back and go, well, why, you know, like, like children sucking our thumbs. 
demanding of God when he's given us access. And we refuse to humble ourselves or we're too lazy to ask. Too lazy, too faithless to ask. Not wanting to confront ourselves, we pass it off on the Lord. The yeah, Bible says this, by a man's decisions, his life comes to ruin, yet his heart rages against the Lord. What's that all about? By your stupidity, you blow the house up, and then you want to blame God for what, for what went on. If there's a problem, it's with you. The problem is not with Jesus. And good news, even if you blow the house up, daddy will fix it if you ask him. That's good news too. (laughs) Say, Lord, I have blown it up and I'm completely, I don't know what I've done, but then ask him. He's in the restoration business. It's what he does. He loves to restore. Jesus can lift the lowliest of lives. I love this verse, 1 Samuel 2.8. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the destitute from the ash heap, and he sets them among rulers and makes them to inherit a seat of glory. This is what he does with you. You're seated as princes. Anybody know your life before you came to Jesus? Huh, can we just talk? And if you don't remember your life before you came to Jesus, I would remind you to remind yourself of your life before you came to Jesus, right? We tend to forget that. We tend to think that we had it all together forever. We didn't. You were messed up. People come to Christ at a low point. They never come to Jesus riding high. And so if you remember that the Lord has lifted you from the dust, huh? And you remember that he takes the destitute and he brings them out of the ash heap. You may be burning your house down. You may have burned your house to the ground. The Bible says he will lift you from that ash heap. Who does that? Our own parents don't even do that, right? What does our mom and dad said? Well, you made your bed lay in it. It's your mess. That's not my mess. I'm not helping you. That's what we say to each other, right? Not Jesus. Lord, I burned my house down. I'm standing in an ash heap. Will you help me? The Lord said, yep, I'll help you. I'll take you from the ash heap and I'll sit you among rulers. We're sons and daughters of God, seated in heavenly places. That's what we are in Christ. As he is, so are we in this world. Sons and daughters. Doesn't mean you act like it. Doesn't mean you live like it. Doesn't even mean you have the slightest clue as what you are. What you are you don't even know what you really are. You don't even know who you really are. We don't even know who he really is, let alone who we really are in him. Absolute total authority is given to the believer. Command of all things is given to the believer. All power in heaven and earth is given to me. And Jesus is like, and I give it to you. Now go and use it. And what do we do? Nothing. Do nothing. We don't even try because we're afraid of failing. The fear of failure is greater than the desire for gain. That's the fear that you must crucify. Your fear of failure is irrelevant. God does not care if you're afraid. What did the man with the talents do? He buried it, right? You know what his excuse was? Anybody know his excuse? I was what? I was afraid. Did Jesus abide that excuse? He did not abide the excuse of fear. I was afraid. Jesus said your fear of failure was greater than your desire for gain, but that is not acceptable to me. You will not stand before the Lord and say that when he has given you something, he's put a mandate and a call and a purpose and he has upon all believers life. You cannot stand before him and say, I didn't do it because I was afraid. That is not acceptable. It's not acceptable. It's not even acceptable to say, I didn't know what I was doing. He doesn't accept that either. He expects you to try even if you don't know what you're doing. 
Oh yeah. Do you know why? Because he teaches you in the process. You not knowing what you're doing is not an excuse. It's not an excuse. It's an excuse to you, but when you stand before your father, that will not be an excuse. He won't accept it. Just a thought. <laughs> he lifts them from the deaths. He puts us and gives us a seat of, of glory, a weight of substance. That's glory. Taking on the form of a bondservant, doulos, bound by intent of will. Jesus gave up his personal authority. He surrendered his glorious status. Could, did, couldn't get rid of his nature because he was God, but he got rid of his glory, his status. Humbled himself, became a doulos laid down his personal will. What did he say? Do you see anywhere where Jesus exercising his perfect will other than when someone says, Lord, if you're willing, he's, and he's doing good, but everything he says, I can do nothing unless the Father shows me. I can do nothing unless I'm told. The Son does not say, see, or do anything unless the Father instructs him. People think, and this is how the, the skeptics will say, well, he wasn't God. It's such ignorance. It's just absolute just absolute blatant ignorance, intellectual ignorance. He did it because he humbled himself. He laid down his will. Do you know why? Because human will needs to be broken. Hmm? There's a price. Man exercised his will, and we still exercise our will. One of the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruit manifestations of the Spirit is self-control. Why is that a given to us? Because Christ has broken human will. How? By submitting and serving. You can control yourself. When you say you can't control yourself, who told you that? If you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You can control yourself. You may have a compulsion. You may have a dysfunction that you need to deal with. But at the end of the day, you can still control yourself. Just a thought. He humbled himself willingly. Willingly. Because man was willful, Jesus came as the last Adam in order to break the offense that man had brought. He humbled himself. He was in the likeness of man, which is the Greek word. I'm going to speak some Greek here. I've been speaking English, so now I've got to get my, I gotta get my, Greek, get my Greek flow here. Genomanos. Genomanos, which means state of existence. So Jesus came in the state of existence as a man. The Greeks also used it as to enter the stage. So Jesus entered the world stage as a man. The appearance, I don't know if I can even pronounce this one, but I'm going to give it a try. Homeoiomati, which means fully man, right? So he entered the world stage fully man. In the appearance of man, yet fully man at the same time with a divine nature, fully God, fully man. How's that possible? Well, you just tap the mystery of the universe right there. Nobody can explain that because it's a miracle. It's the incarnation. No one can, we can, we can understand what went on, but we don't understand how that happened. God became man. Apparently he can do that. Yes, he did. He did not stand out by his appearances. He stood out by his nature. He humbled himself to the death of the cross. To die on the cross to this day, they would completely outlaw it. It is the worst way you could ever possibly die. It is a death of humiliation. Everybody ever heard the word excruciating? You ever hurt yourself and said, that was excruciating pain. Anybody yeah. know what that means? Yeah. It comes from the Greek word, the same word for cross, which is crux. And so excruciating pain comes from crucifixion. So if you can get an idea of what crucifixion is, 
They would drive the spike not through the hand but through the wrist. And it would pierce the nerve in the hand and the thumb would collapse over the palm. And so the nail would go through the nerve in the hand, radiating pain up the body. Because the spike went through the nerve. They would do the same thing through the foot. Bang! Through both feet. Right through the, right, all the way through the, uh, what is the Achilles? Piercing the Achilles tendon. Just try that out. Anybody ever tore their Achilles? Not fun. They would drive that spike. So Jesus was excruciating pain, and they knew what they were doing. The Romans knew exactly what they were doing. So crucifixion wasn't the death, wasn't the way you wanted to go. You would be better to die by the sword than to, to die by crucifixion. Yet Jesus chose that because the law demanded it. The righteousness of God demanded it. Deuteronomy 1.23, Bible says this, those who hang upon a tree bear the curse. And Jesus hung upon a tree. See, he's not a literal tree. Duh. What's a what's cross made out of? Wood. Where does wood come from? You get the symbolism? People are like, well, they didn't. I had somebody tell me that one time. Which is, the Bible says that he hung on a tree. He didn't hang on a tree. I mean, really? So it's like Christian dumb. Dumb. It's like, are we really that dumb? <laughs> Galatians 3 says he did it to bear the curse of sin. He became a curse for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He took our humanity and hung it. He took our humanity and the sin of wood that exalted with it, and he took the curse of man and hung it on a tree. And because he did this, this is what Christmas is all about. Christmas isn't about the baby in the manger. It's about the child born to set the world free. That's what Christmas is about. The baby was born to die. Oftentimes our religious icons are, we portray Jesus as a victim. He's no victim. Catholicism in particular, they either portray him as a baby who's helpless or they portray him as helpless dying on a cross. He's neither. He's seated in glory at the right hand of the Father and he was never a victim for one moment. Not one moment was Jesus ever a victim. He was in control of it from start to finish. He was a victor from start to finish. No one took anything from him. Pilate goes, don't you know I have power over you? <laughs> Jesus has said, if I asked my father, I could send 10,000 angels here right now. And your, po your power means nothing. You have no power over me unless it was given to you from above. I'm not under you. I've allowed you. You don't have authority over me. I've allowed this. Major difference. And you don't think he can solve your problems. <laughs> You don't think he can work it out. Here's our problem. We're just, we're like, uh, we're, uh, you know, we're like Burger King, man. We ask God, and if he doesn't give it to us our way and now, we don't think he works. You don't know him. You ask the Lord, he hears you. But sometimes your circumstance, you have screwed your circumstance up so much that, that, that a miracle isn't going to turn that around instantly. There will be a miracle but when God releases the word, it comes into time and space, and now God must orchestrate events in order to bring the deliverance that's necessary. You think he's just going to make it all go away tomorrow. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that, but and he always works. That's right. That's why the Bible says, be weary not in your well-doing. In due season, you will reap if you faint not. God will be faithful. The question, Christian, isn't whether God will be faithful. The question is, is will you maintain faith? That's the question. And faith is even being obedient because God will instruct you along the way. We don't believe God speaks. Man, we, we have neutered the power of God to such an extent in the life of the church. It's like non-existent. 
And what we really neuter is like we believe that we worship God in objective form. We worship him through text. We worship him through liturgy. We worship him through false idolatries. Is that what God asks for? They that worship God must what? Come on, help me out. Worship God in spirit and in truth. So our worship of our Father is always and forever in spirit. So if you do not know how to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, and you do not know how to commune with God on the basis of the Holy Spirit, very little of kingdom is ever going to manifest in your life. Even when you're going through circumstances, the Lord has a word. But if you don't know how to hear him, there's no word coming. You're guessing. God will instruct you, and he'll tell you, wait, don't do anything. Stand where you are. And everything in you, all of your impulses, all of your minds is going to be feeling like, I need to do something. I need to act. I need to jump. This is the intellectual thing to do. This is the correct thing to do. Everybody's telling me to do it, but the Spirit of God is saying, don't you move. Why couldn't Saul manifest kingdom? Because he couldn't follow a simple set of instructions. Saul is the image of a king who could not manifest kingdom. And what is the sum total of Saul's life? He could not follow a simple set of instructions. Every time the Lord gave him instruction, Saul trumped it with his own opinion. And you know what happened? It got worse. And a lot of Christians, they, God will give them an instruction and he will say, stand right here, don't you move. Don't you touch that. Don't you send that email. I know people, they want their marriages restored. They want their families restored. And God will tell them, do not contact that woman. Let her be. I will deal with her. And what have I seen them do? Way more often than not, firing off an email, making a phone call, sending that text. And they can't resolve an issue because they don't give God room enough to move. The Lord's like, didn't I tell you to not do that? Didn't I tell you not to call him? I'm going to deal with him. Didn't I tell you not to touch that? And you keep touching it, and then you're like, well, God just didn't do it for me. He just didn't do it for me. No, you keep jacking it up. You keep jacking it up. So Jesus is just going to stand there until you've made an ash heap, and then he can work with whatever you got left. People don't hear God, and they don't want to hear the Lord. I've been young, and I've been old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging for bread. David said God will provide. Problem isn't whether he provides. Problem is, is we think we need God to provide on our terms. We're little dictators. We tell Jesus how he's going to provide for us, when he's going to provide for us. I want it like this, and I want it in this time frame. And if you don't give it to me like this and in this time frame, then I just don't care. I, I don't, the Lord's like, Jesus is Adonai. He's Lord. You're not. You're not. You have no idea what he's doing in your life. I, I can tell you things in my life where God has done great development of me. Just like his Bible says, you don't want to hear, we don't want to hear these verses. I'll give you verses that no one wants to hear. Yeah, you know, They're loving, they're kind, they're just, they're good, they're hopeful, but it's not something you preach on Sunday morning in the United States of America. God led them in the wilderness and caused them to suffer hunger. That's what he said. Why? That they would learn to not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. You mean God led his people in a wilderness? Yes, he did. You know what the word wilderness is? Debar. Ready? He led them in the wilderness, Debar, which is the place of speaking. I led them to a place of speaking, and I caused them 
to suffer no resources at all from any other means but by me. That they would learn that their external resources are not their provider, but I am. Oh, we don't want to preach that. We just tell God, God's going to bless anything you do. You go right ahead. You do that. You do this, you do that, you do whatever you want, and God's going to bless it. No, he won't. No, he won't. We won't want to hear it. God's put me through many times where the things that I've trusted in would fail me. Everything that I trusted in would fail me, but he never did. Your, t- your life is a testimony and will be a testimony. The, whom the Lord, he, listen, God wants to grow you up. Do you know why? Because he doesn't want anything to move you. you. You've been through things and you've watched it. Everything around you has failed you, but God hasn't. Therefore, you're not moved because everything has failed you before and God's never failed you. Not once has he failed you. People that try to say God's failed them, it's like, you're not even telling me the whole story. Well, I prayed. And a lady go, I tithed for two weeks and God didn't provide for me. I tithed for two weeks. I'm like, tithe for a year. Give God the full tithe for 12 months and then you come back and tell me. Don't tell me that. I got prayed for healing one time and I didn't get healed. But you go to a doctor 60 times, right? But you give Jesus just that one little window, that one little tiny window, that's what we'll give Jesus. This is your moment, Lord. Don't fail. Or I'm gonna go back and see Dr. So-and-so for the next 150 times. Some people do. They'll go to a, they'll fly across the country, fly across the country to see specialists, but they won't humble themselves and take their place in a healing line. And if they do, they do it one time, but they'll see that specialist every month, every week. If that specialist says, I need you here every Tuesday at two o'clock, people will clear their schedules to go and meet with that specialist every Tuesday at two o'clock. But if Jesus were to say that to you, what would you do? If Jesus were to tell you, every time there's a call for healing, take your place in that line. Every single time. You hear healing, you take your place. I want you to feed on healing scriptures. I want you to feed on a healing word. I want you to listen to people teaching on healing. And every time there's a call for healing, I want you to activate and I want you to lean in. Even if the guy's reaching forward through the, through the television screen, I want you to activate. Would you do that? Would you do that? You'd be shocked at how many people don't. But by God, they'll fly to the Cleveland Clinic if they need to. They'll mortgage their house to go and see that specialist. Just a thought. God is highly exalted. He's humbled us. Listen, healing's your birthright in Christ. It's your birthright. It's your inheritance. Well, why don't I have it? Because you don't activate it. You don't activate it. And why don't you activate it? It's either ignorance or it's arrogance. It's one of the two. You're either too arrogant and so prideful and so full of yourself that God can't move in you or you're completely ignorant as to what this means and how to do it. It's ignorance and arrogance, but it's not God's fault. Every believer is given the right of inheritance of healing. Will all be healed? No, but there's good reason why. (laughs) All can, but not all will. All can speak in tongues, but not all will. All can prophesy, but not all will. All can have wisdom and access to the mind of Christ, but not all will. If I told you you had access to revelation, if I told you if you took a day out of your life and you said every morning at whatever time, he doesn't care, the Lord doesn't care, I'm gonna take and I'm gonna meet with God for 15 or 20 minutes and I'm gonna worship and I'm gonna just honor him and I'm gonna hear what he would say to me in regards to my business. And I say, I'm gonna take six months out of my life 
and I'm going to hear what the Lord would speak to me and would say over me in regards to my personhood and in regards to the direction of my life. You would be absolutely shocked at what he would tell you. We don't listen. We don't even take the time to listen. But if you will listen, he will show you. You don't think God's got bigger plans for you than you? (laughs) You don't know the plan I have for my mouth. I'm like, you don't know the plan Jesus has for your life. You don't know the plan Jesus has for your business. Say, I got a plan for my business. If you have a business and it's your passion and it's your drive, then highly likely it's given to you by the Lord. If it's the drive of your heart and you feel it and you come alive when you're, when you're doing it, highly likely that that's a call. But God's calling upon those who are in business and entrepreneurship is kingdom ministry. God will give you so, he will elevate that process so amazingly if you'll make covenant with him, if you'll learn him and you'll listen to him. And people like, I got a guy right now, he does stocks. He starts asking the Lord what stocks he should invest in. And he, is, and he says, the Lord starts telling him, he has one, it went up like 700%. I don't even know, like some crazy number. Like, because he said, he felt like the Lord told him, but why? Because he listens, he listens, listens in the spirit. He cultivates a hearing ear. That's what Solomon asked for. Solomon did not ask for wisdom, Christian. That is not what it says in Hebrews. He asked for a hearing ear. Read it. If you read that, he's not saying, give me wisdom. It's not the word used. Give me, a, give me an ear to hear you. Where's wisdom come from? The voice of God, does it not? So Solomon's like, all I gotta do is hear you, man. <laughs> and I've got wisdom in spades. All you gotta do is hear the Lord. Do what he says. It may not make sense to you, but if you will do it, it will change you. It's like people coming to Christ, and I'm just gonna close it here. It doesn't make sense. The Bible says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he's risen from the dead and you'll be saved. That doesn't make sense. Yet the Lord tells you that's what you need to do. Christmas is about the child born to set the world free. The good news is the price is already paid. It's already paid, but you have to ask for it. It's like everything God has. It's already, the provision is there, but he does not force himself on anyone. Salvation and the atonement and the price and the payment for man's sin is already paid for, but man must ask, man must ask. And the good news is, is when you ask, it's freely given. He doesn't hold it back. That's good news. How do you know that? Because he says so. John chapter six, verse 37. Anyone, all who come to me, I will in no way cast away. Everybody that comes to me, I'm not gonna get rid of you. I'm not gonna shun you. I'm not gonna despise you. I will welcome you. But what's the key? You've gotta come. God's like, look, if you come to me, I'm not gonna get rid of you. I'm not gonna push you away. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what he's done. He's come beneath you. He's gone to your lowest point and then some. He has the ability to lift you up. No one else does. You can't pull yourself up, but he can. You can't clean your heart, but he can. Bible says, though you wash with much soap and lie, yet your sin remains. And he says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. So he's saying, there's nothing you can do to get rid of the stain of guilt. There's nothing you can do to get rid of the stain of shame, but I can. We sing songs, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He's the only one that can, and he's willing. And it makes no sense, but that's okay. It doesn't have to make sense. Faith doesn't make sense. Romans says, if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that he has risen from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin. 
saved from judgment, saved from hell. You say, is hell real? Hell yeah, hell's real. <laughs> had a group of pastors go, is hell real? I'm like, hell yeah, hell's real. <laughs> hell is the condemnation of sin and you need to be saved from it. There is a heaven to gain and a hell to run from. And the only way you get out of that is running to Jesus. Good news. He welcomes you, accepts you. You can be forgiven, given a new life, a new beginning, and a new heart. What a deal. Sounds too good to be true. No, it's so good it is true. That's right. It's not too good to be true. It's so good it is true. And he offers it to you. The Bible says old things will pass away and all things will become new. You're going to be brand new. Be brand new. It's okay. What do we do? We're going to pray. Elevate here is going to pray with us, but we want you to pray at home. And we want you to ask Jesus into your heart this morning. If you've never done it before, today's your day. Not tomorrow, not next week, not I'll think about it. No, right now, man. Right now. The best 60 seconds of your life is coming your way. This is the greatest 60 seconds you could ever ask for. And you say, man, I'm so far away from the Lord. I, I don't know. I used to know him. I used to walk with him, but I feel like I'm so far away. Well, first of all, you left. He didn't. He's still with you. And you want to pray this prayer, and it just as a rededication, you're not going to get saved again, but you, will get, you can just come back to him in a, in, a, in, a, in a humble attitude. Of course, he's going to accept you. So we're going to pray, and we're going to pray together. Just pray with us. Open your mouth. Open your heart, and Jesus will do the rest. Just say, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior, and I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. And so I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me, and I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you, and all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. You say, is that it? No, that's the start of it. We celebrate with you. Yes, we celebrate with you. If you prayed that prayer and you've never done it before, hit us up in Messenger. Uh, send us an email. We'd love to connect with you. And then for the rest of us, I'm going to bless you one more time. We're going to dismiss and end the service. So let me bless you one more time. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace in Jesus' name. God loves you. We love you. Have a wonderful week in Jesus' name.